Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This episode of Pardes from Jerusalem features Yiska Smith on Parashat Vayeshev. Did you know that Pardes from Jerusalem is on Spotify? Follow us there for the weekly Parsha podcast or by visiting elmod.pardes.org. And now, Yiska Smith. Yosef and Yehuda, healing a rift extending across history and within the individual self. Based on a teaching from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, in Lekutei Sichot, Volume 25, translated and adapted by Yanki Tauber. <clears throat> the conflict between Yosef and Yehuda runs like a seam across the entire history of Israel. At times, Yosef gains the upper hand, and at times, Yehuda prevails. But the schism always resurfaces. In Mesechet Sukkah 52a-b, our sages even speak of two messiahs, each with a role to play in ushering in the final universal redemption. Mashiach ben Yosef, descended from Yosef, and Mashiach ben David, descended from King David, from the tribe of Yehuda. What are the implications for the people of Israel and for the individual's spiritual practice as well? The conflict has its roots in Yaakov's marriages to Leah and Rachel. Yaakov's preference lay with Rachel. She was his first love and the one he regarded as his primary wife. But Leah was the first he married, the first to bear his children, and the one to emerge victorious in the sisters' competition to provide Yaakov with the most sons. All of Leah's six sons, in fact, were born before Rachel's firstborn, Yosef. Rachel had a total of two children as she died while giving birth to her second son, Benjamin. As Yaakov's firstborn, Leah's son, Reuven, is initially slated for leadership in all areas of Jewish life. But Reuven sins, and his firstborn rights are transferred to three of his brothers. The priesthood goes to Leah's third son, Levi. The kingship to Leah's fourth, Yehuda, and the birthright, the right of the firstborn to a double portion in his father's heritage, to Yosef. Thus, Yosef's descendants comprise two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, and receive two territories in the Holy Land. Reuven's sin is itself an outgrowth of the Leah-Rachel rivalry. As Reuven interferes in his father's marital arrangements in protest after Rachel's passing of Yaakov's giving precedence to Rachel's maid, Bilah, over his own mother, Leah. As we read in Bereshit in Genesis 35, 22, Lamed Hay, Chavbet, Vayelech Reuven, Vayishkav et Bilah, Pelegesh Aviv. Yaakov transfers his love of Rachel to her son Yosef. 
demonstrating his greater preference toward him over his brothers as he had demonstrated his preference of Rachel over Leah. The brothers' jealousy is augmented by Yosef's dreams, which Yosef insists on repeatedly describing to them and to his father, dreams which foretell his mastery over them. This the sons of Leah are determined to prevent at any cost. Shimon and Levi plot to kill Yosef. Yehuda prevents this but oversees his sale into slavery. But the brothers' victory, as we know, is short-lived. Soon they find themselves in Egypt at the mercy of a harsh viceroy who, unbeknownst to them, is their banished brother. They prostrate themselves before him in fulfillment of his dreams. Yehuda confronts Yosef but finds his considerable physical might and intellectual prowess bested by his younger brother. Then comes the moving scene in which Yosef reveals himself to them and is reconciled with them. Yosef is now the undisputed leader of the fledgling nation. He is their protector and their source of sustenance. Even Yaakov bows to him. When the people of Israel emerge from Egyptian exile, it is under the leadership of Moshe and Aharon, both Levi'im. Both Levi'im. But it is Yehoshua, a descendant of Yosef through Ephraim, who leads them in their conquest of the Holy Land. Several generations later, Another descendant of Yosef, through Manasseh, Gidon, liberates them from foreign rule and governs them, as we learn in Shoftim, in Judges, chapters 6, 7, and 8. For 369 years, the Mishkan, which is the forerunner of the Holy Temple, serves as the spiritual epicenter of Jewish life, is situated in Shiloh, in the territory of Yosef, through Ephraim. When the people of Israel ask for a king, another descendant of Rachel, the the Binyaminite, Shaul, is endowed with the crown. Then, after centuries of Yosefian ascendancy, the pendulum swings once more. David, the Skion of Yehuda, is anointed as king. His struggles with King Shaul are a replay of the age-old Leir-Achel rivalry over the leadership of Israel. For seven years, David reigns in the Judean city of Hebron, while a son of Shaul, Yonatan, is the recognized king in the north. But then the sovereignty of David is accepted by the entire people of Israel. David makes his capital in another Judean city, Yerushalayim. His son Shlomo builds the Beit HaMikdash, the holy temple, on a part of the city which straddles the boundary between Yehuda and Binyamin. The schism seems to be healed. The people united with the leadership firmly in the hands of Yehuda. (sighs) But, But once more the conflict resurfaces. Following Shlomo's death, Yeravam, a descendant of Yosef through Ephraim, leads a revolt against the royal house of David, as we read in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 12, Malachim Aleph, Perak Yudbet. He even gets other tribes descended from Leah 
to join him in the renunciation of the Judean leadership. For the next 240 years, the Holy Land is split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, encompassing ten breakaway tribes under Yosefian leadership, and the southern kingdom of Yehuda. Interestingly, the tribe of Benjamin remains loyal to the Judean throne. The sons of Yosef are simply not prepared to accept the sovereignty of Yehuda. This is most emphatically illustrated by the following Talmudic account in Masechet Sanhedrin, 102a. Quote, God himself grabbed Yeravam by his robe and said to him, Repent, and I, you, and the son of Yishai, meaning King David's lineage, will stroll together in the Garden of Eden. Asked Yeravam, who will walk first? God answered, the son of Yishai. Said Yeravam, if so, I am not interested. The breach persists to this day. A century before the destruction of the first temple, as recorded in the book of Kings in 2 Kings, chapter 17, the first six verses. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, overran the northern kingdom of Israel and exiled the ten tribes to an unknown place. They were never heard from again. The breach persists to this day. The rest of Jewish history, as we know it, really is the story of the surviving tribes of Yehuda and Binyamin, a significant part of Levi, whose priests and Leviim lived in cities throughout the Holy Land, and a small number of Jews from the other tribes who lived in the kingdom of Yehuda. But, again, but, the prophets promise that so, so, finally, there will come a time when the rent halves of the people of Israel will once and for all be reunited. The Messianic age will be heralded by a Messiah, a Mashiach from the tribe of Yosef, and a Davidic Messiah from the tribe of Yehuda. Ultimately, however, the sovereignty of Yehuda will be established once and for all. In the words of the prophet Yechezkel, 37, verses 15 through 28, I'll just share with you some of the excerpts from these beautiful, eloquent, redemptive, encouraging verses. I will make them into one nation in the land. And a single king shall be over them all. My servant David shall be king over them and they shall all have a single shepherd. David And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Forever, David, Avdi, We also read in Yeshayahu in the prophet Isaiah chapter 11, Verse 13, the envy also of Ephraim shall depart, and they that harass Yehuda shall be cut off. 
Ephraim shall not envy Yehuda, and Yehuda shall not harass Ephraim. Through the lens of spirituality, we learn that the Yosef-Yehuda conflict expresses a dichotomy that extends to every area of life. The tension between what the Rebbe considers to be growth and self-fulfillment on the one hand and being in service with commitment to that which is greater than self on the other hand. There are many identifiable motives to human actions and many ideas that suggest the purpose to human life. However, all fall under one of two general categories. A, for ourselves, to enjoy life, realize our potentials, experience different dimensions of reality, and to achieve transcendence. And B, for something greater than ourselves that compel us to be in service to whatever that may be, to society, to history, ideas, to God. Indeed, we sense both A and B to be ever-present forces in our lives. On the one hand, we are strongly driven to better ourselves, to get the most out of every experience and opportunity. We also sense that this is not always a shallow selfishness, but something very deep and true in our own neshamot, in our souls, something implanted in us by our Creator as intrinsic to our identity and purpose. On the other hand, we are equally aware that we are part of something greater than ourselves, that if our existence does have meaning, it is only because it serves a a reality beyond its own finite and subjective self. We find both sensibilities expressed by the Torah and in the words of our sages. For example, the Torah in Devarim in Deuteronomy 11, 13 to 21, which is the very second portion of the Shema, repeatedly stresses that the divine plan for life is for the good of the human being, both materially and spiritually. The Midrash in Bereshit Rabbah 44.1 even makes the claim that the mitzvot were given only to refine humanity. The Talmud goes so far as to state in Mesechet Sanhedrin, Lamad Zion, Amud Aleph, um, page 37, side A, every person is obligated to say, the whole world was created for my sake. Kol echad ve'echad chayav lomar, bishvili nivra olam. The Balatanya, Rabbi Shinir Zaman of Ladi, describes in his Sefer, Lekutei Tarah, that the saga of the soul is as a descent for the purpose of an ascent. Yerida Shetsuricha Aliyah, the soul's entry into the physical state entails a curtailment of its spiritual faculties and sensitivities, but the purpose of it all is that it, the soul, be elevated by the challenges and achievements of earthly life. Yet, elsewhere, we learn that the highest praise that the Torah has for Moshe Rabbeinu, whom the Rambam refers to in his 13 fundamental principles as the most perfect human being and the father of all prophets, 
is that he was, as quoted in Devarim, Lamed Dalet Hay, at the very end of the Chumash, he was simply a servant of God. Evet Hashem. Deuteronomy 34, verse 5. Our sages repeatedly exhort us to strive for altruism in our lives so that everything we do as, as taught in Tractate Kedushin 82b is permeated with the recognition that I was not created, but to serve my creator. Kedushin Peibet Amudbet. Page 82, side B. Lo nivrati, ela lishamesh et koni. Only lishamesh to serve my creator. Our sages discuss this duality in terms of learning and doing. Talmud Torah and observing the mitzvot. Thus they debate which is greater, learning or doing. Learning involves the development and the perfection of self while doing entails the surrender of self to the task at hand. Again, why was the human being placed on earth? To better refine and perfect the self, or to achieve the surrender of self in service to the Creator? In Bereshit 29.17, Chavtet Yudzayin, we learn that Rachel was of beautiful form <clears throat> and of beautiful appearance. Yifat to'ah vifat mar'eh. This embodies the drive for self-fulfillment and self-realization, while the humble and yielding Leah represents our capacity for service and surrender. Rachel's qualities were strongly emphasized in the handsome, charismatic, and enterprising Yosef, who unabashedly relates his dreams of greatness and then proceeds to turn his every circumstance into a personal success. Sold as a slave, he soon becomes an overseer of all his master's possessions. Thrown into jail, he rises to a high position in the prison administration, and from there to viceroy over the most powerful nation on earth. His external beauty and successes manifest an inner spiritual perfection. Yosef HaTzadik, the righteous one, as he perseveres in the face of moral tests, and retains his tzitkut, his righteousness, in the most corrupting of environments. Yehuda, in contradistinction, displays the humility and commitment of one to whom life is a duty rather than an achievement. He steps in to prevent the murder of Yosef. He readily owns up to his he owns up to his responsibility for the sale of Yosef and to his culpability in the incident with Tamar. He pledges to be accountable for Benjamin's safety, and when the latter is retained by the Egyptian viceroy, offers himself as a slave in his place. He is the acknowledged leader of his brethren but his is a leadership burdened by responsibility and sustained by commitment rather than one that is buoyed by self-confidence and driven by ambition. So Yosef, whose name means to add, 
represents ongoing growth and achievement. While Yehuda, whose name means to acknowledge, to admit, is the paradigm of commitment and surrender of self. These two forces vie for ascendancy in our every thought and feeling, in every choice we make, and every action we take in the course of our lives. At times, the one gains the upper hand. At times, the other rules our lives. On the macro-historical level, these are the two contrasting and competing forces at play in the history of our people, as Yehuda and Yosef vie for the leadership of Yisrael. There is, however, a point at which these two forces do converge and unite. This is the point at which it is recognized. And Hever, this is the teaching. This is the whole point, <laughs> that the refinement and perfection of the self can itself be an altruistic enterprise when it is undertaken solely because this is what the Creator desires from us. When it is appreciated that as the Talmud resolves its above-sided debate, <coughs> learning is greater because it brings one to deed, a better self, a more knowing, sensitive, and accomplished self, is a self who is better resourced to, to fill, fulfill its purpose in creation. Indeed, the making of this better self is the fulfillment of its purpose in creation. Ultimately, improving the self may actually represent the ultimate service of God. When a person attains this perfected and pinnacle place of love for the divine, the Yehuda and the Yosef in the person are in full harmony with each other. The person's Yehuda reigns sovereign. The ultimate criterion is in fact being in service to the divine. <clears throat> but the Yosef in the person is not silenced or suppressed. On the contrary, its passions are cultivated, its ambitions are encouraged, and its selfhood is fully integrated in the selflessness of the Judaic self. In conclusion, and when this integration is achieved on the universal and cosmic level as well, Oh, Bimhe Rabbi Amenu, we shall enter the age in which Yechezkiel's prophecy in 37, 22 through 25 will be realized. I will make them into one nation, and my servant David shall be their prince forever. Va'asiti otam l'goy echad, v'david avdi nasi lehem, lehem. Mamash Laulam Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcast today. You can also subscribe to any of our other podcast channels by visiting us on Spotify or online at elmod.pardes.org. Tune in next week to listen to Rabbi Alex Israel. 
as he discusses Parashat Miketz. Thanks for listening.